First reading is Luke 2, chapter 2, verse 41 to 52. And that's page 725 on the church Bibles. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, for they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they travelled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Then Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and men. And the second reading is Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 16. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, a husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy messages as it has been taught, so they can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Well, good evening, everyone. Are you there? Is there an awake? Yeah. I think Alana's here it's awake. <laughs> it's so good to see you all here. Welcome, Happy New Year. I hope you all had a good Christmas and New Year break. I certainly did. Kay and I went up the north coast to Byron to with friends to just hang out and relax and most importantly, to surf. We did so much surfing. It was so good. I'm all surfed out. And one day, I got attacked by a whole lot of sea lice out in the surf, like you could, it was so bad, you could feel the sea lice biting you, it was that bad, but the surf was absolutely pumping, and so I couldn't get out of the water, I had to stay in there and just endure it to the end. Anyway, I had a great time, I thought I should let you know that, Uh, but it is so good that we are back now together here. I love that we can come together to worship God, to hear from His Word, to sing together, 
And so there's nothing better than being together as his people. And we're going through a series in the book of Titus tonight. We're in the second week of this series, looking at Paul's letter to Titus and what this means for us today. So how about I pray for us as we begin, particularly since, as you can probably tell, my voice is not going to hold up for much longer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your love, that you're a God who speaks uh, even when my voice itself fails. And so we pray tonight that your spirit would work through me as, as I preach and work in our hearts as we hear your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would encourage us as we seek to unpack what this passage in Titus means for us today. We pray in your son's name. Amen. One of our culture's highest values is freedom. We have a strong desire to live without restraints, to want to do whatever it is we want to do, to plot our own course, to have the freedom and the ability to decide for ourselves what we should do with our future, uh, to behave in whatever way we want to behave, and to do so as long as we don't harm anyone else. The sky is the limit. However, freedom left unchecked can lead to potential chaos and disaster. And so we employ systems uh, externally that control our freedom so we can't simply do whatever we want to do. And the most obvious example of this is the form of government. We, as Australian citizens, must uphold the laws that our government sets for us if we want to live in the society. So if you want to drive on the roads here, you need to follow the speed limit and wear a seatbelt. Some of you are kind of laughing, because you know you don't do that. If you want to ha work in this nation, you've got to pay tax as well. Now, we certainly have the freedom to not obey those laws. We can choose to speed or not wear seatbelts, and we can choose to work out how we can best avoid paying tax. But the reason why most of us actually will choose to obey those laws is because we don't want to cop a fine either from the tax office or from the police as they catch us on their radar. Or perhaps we do want to obey those laws because we know they exist for our good. We know that paying tax is good for the welfare of our nation. We know that, that sticking to the speed limit and wearing a seatbelt is not just simply keeps us safe, but it could potentially save our life as well. And yet, although we can see this, we have a deep suspicion towards those in authority, that they know what's best for us, that they have in mind what is good for us when they set and make laws. We tend to, as Australians, bring down our national leaders and have a go at our government because we don't think they have what's best for us in their minds. I think the reason is, is because in history, particular in modern history, although it's been throughout all of history, we've seen too many examples of governments who have misused their power at the expense of other people. And perhaps the most famous example is in World War II, where we saw <coughs> a regime in Nazi Germany use their power and their ideology to mistreat, not just simply mistreat, but exterminate millions and millions of people all in the name of what they believed. And there are other examples as well, in Pol Pot, in Rwanda, all kinds of examples. But I think World War II was a defining cultural moment for us. And ever since then, we have seen a, 
a deep suspicion towards authority, power structures, as seen in postmodernism, as such as well. We don't trust those in power because we believe that what they are going to institute in our life is not for our good, it's for their good. And our popular culture has embodied this in, in, in books and in shows and movies as well. And so you, you read books like Brave New World or you watch TV shows like The Recent Handmaid's Tale and these shows are all about controlling societies that seek to destroy the individual's autonomy, identity and freedom, to control them not for their benefit but for the powers and people in charge's benefit. That's what they exist for. And we see, if you've seen The Handmaid's Tale, the protagonist June loses her identity and it becomes known as of Fred. Her identity is wrapped up as a slave in who her master is. So therefore this structure is oppressing her autonomy, oppressing her freedom, that she now no longer has her identity. Now this kind of controlling society theme in TV shows, I think, reaches its climax in the post-apocalyptic genre. TV shows or books like... Well, so it shows like The Walking Dead, for example. These shows uh, present a society that's been totally stripped of its law and order, totally broken down of society's kind of structures that keep law and order. And what arises from that is this kind of raw survival of the fittest where you get to choose your own destiny and how you respond to adversity. And it gives this idea that you can become truly who you really want to be or who you think you really are. You're no longer the school teacher that you're told to be or the lawyer or the janitor who you once were. You're now the survivor. You're now who you're truly meant to be. And that kind of show, the reason why it's so popular is not because it's just got zombies in it. It's popular because it captures our imagination that if you took away all this stuff, you could be truly someone who you really want to be. You could be your true self. All these things, these shows, these books, these movies, our current climate and culture, they present an idea to become our best self, to become who you truly are. We need to be more free and less controlled. We need more autonomy and less regulation and it's when we can decide for ourselves what is good and right that we can become truly who we want to be. Now, why do I say all this? It's because it's our culture's vision of the good life. And this vision of the good life is oppressing and threatening the vision of life that Jesus has for us as his church. It questions the goodness of the church's place as a body of believers under the authority of Jesus. Christians submit themselves to Jesus who is the head of the body and he brings order to this body of believers by appointing men and women to lead his church, to give them authority to order and to regulate their church. Now we fear authority in the 21st century, as I've just said. That's our standing point. And many people in our society today fear not just authority from the government, but they also fear authority in the church as well. They don't believe the church exists for their good. Many people have experience being manipulated or being mistreated and, and worse from the church worldwide. And we must grieve that because it's not good. 
But the answer isn't to abandon order and authority structures in the church. For we know that freedom left unchecked can lead to chaos and disorder. And that's true of the church as well. If we just simply gathered here and allowed anyone to come up the front and preach, or allowed anyone to come and lead us as a congregation, that would potentially be disastrous if the wrong person got up here and led us away from the truth of Jesus. Or the wrong person became in charge and decided they wanted to raise their own agenda that was only for their own good and not for your own good as well. And then we're left in the same position. A church and people who are mistreated by someone else in power and authority. This is an issue back in Crete where Titus is. And Paul is writing to Titus saying, Titus, you need to appoint elders. We need to bring order to the church because God loves his people and I want you to make sure that they are protected and looked after and loved. And that's why in verse 5 he says, Titus, I left you there to bring order and to appoint elders. And in verse 10, we see the reason why for this. He says, For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. When the church is left without order or leadership, it provides a vacuum and therefore a space for anyone to rise up and take charge, including the wrong people. And so the purpose of church order and governance is that the right people are appointed who will seek the good of the church. And that's why Paul writes to Titus here and says, here are the qualifications and here what they must do if they want to be a church elder or a church leader. And it's why it's so important for Titus to get this right. Because the health and the flourishing of the church is at stake here. This passage might not seem like it has much to do with you personally because you're not perhaps wanting to be a minister or you're not a minister at all. But I'd suggest that it's applicable to all of us because the ordering of God's church through the appointment of church leaders affects all of us. These leaders are appointed for your good. That you might have a flourishing and strong relationship with the Lord. That order and authority properly ordered to the message of Jesus is not only something we need or should desire, but it's also something our world longs for as well. Our world has got this issue where they know freedom left unchecked causes problems, but they want more and more freedom because they fear authority is going to oppress them. And so they're left in this kind of state thinking, what do we do? What do we do about this? The answer is in looking at the church and how it operates under the authority of Christ, knowing it exists for the good of its people. So as we unpack this this evening, I hope that becomes even clearer to you, that we might uh, not desire to abandon authority structures in the church, but see why they exist and exist for our good, and then place our trust in Christ, where his authority is expressed through the leaders he appoints for the good of his people. And so for this to happen... We need to appoint godly leaders. Look at verse 6. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. 
since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. There are, I think, three categories here of godliness that are required of the church leader. If For someone to become a church leader, they must be godly when it comes to their family, godly when it comes to their character, and godly when it comes to their ministry. Now, from the outset, if you read that passage, all these qualities look like something that we should all have and embody in the life of believers. And that is true. These are the qualities, the fruits of Christians who have faith in Christ. But Paul specifically marks these out for those who are appointed to church leadership. <coughs> and not, it's not so much that they need, they possess more of these qualities over and above normal church members, but rather as the church leader, they need to be blameless in the way they execute these qualities themselves. You see, they are not less sinful or more godly, but rather they recognize that being in a position of authority, being in a position where they are seen by other people, they need to make sure that no one can bring them any reasonable charge against them. Their life needs to be deniable when it comes to sin. It doesn't mean they're not sinful, but it does mean that they need, people can't bring a reasonable charge that will not allow them to be in church leadership. So when it comes to the family, being blameless means having only one wife. Check, I've got one wife, no more than one. And having children who are believing and faithful, not wildly disobedient. What this means is not so much having children who are definitely Christian, but rather have a healthy relationship with their father and mother, where they obey their mother and their father. The leader is able to control their child's freedom and order it in such a way that it's for their good. So both being faithful to their wife or to their husband and ensuring the obedience of their children shows the leader is able to control his own freedom for his own good and the freedom of his children for their own good. Such is a very godly trait to have. So when his desire to look at other women or if it's a woman, look at other men, instead of indulging in that, he chooses not to because he wants to be faithful to his wife. When their kids scream relentlessly for chocolate cake and Tim Tams as their consistent diet, instead of giving in and going, fine, take it, the leader says to their children, no, that's not good for you. And they restrict what their kids can have. Why? Not because they hate their children, but because they love them and know what is good for them. We see this as well when it comes to the leader's character. In verse 7 and 8, the church leader doesn't simply fly off the handle when something doesn't go their way. They're self-controlled, gentle, patient. They don't accidentally stumble into drunkenness after too many drinks at dinner. No, they are thoughtful. They know how much is enough when it comes to drinks 
And so they had discipline and self-control. You see here all these characteristics, both in the family and with the, the self, require an ability to be restrictive, disciplined, to hold oneself back. And why do they do that? Why do they restrict their freedom and not just go all out on the drinks or let their kids do whatever they want? It's because they love what is good. They love what is good and they know that if they allowed their desires just to roam free and to allow themselves to indulge in whatever came to their mind, their hearts and their minds would pursue what was evil and not good for them. And then that would affect their children and their family as well. The true self is not made up of our desires and enacting on our desires. The true self is when we are disciplined and restrict ourselves towards what is truly good for us. And we'll see as we come further on what that is exactly. These are important qualities, though, for a church leader. as It shows the ability, by the grace of God, to order one's life and the lives of those in their community to what is good and away from what is not good. It's a daunting passage to read for me as a, as a minister, preaching on this now to you, telling you what this all means. I can't say I'm perfect in all these areas. Sometimes my anger gets the better of me. Sometimes I'm stubborn and I don't listen to reason. And my hope is that I don't become gripped by these vices, but rather I'm always seeking repentance and forgiveness, always looking to the grace of God, and that instead I seek to choose what is good so I can, for my own sake, but also for your own sake as well. And I think the key to that is in the execution of the last category of godliness, the kind of ministry the church leader must perform, which we read about in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. What grounds all these characteristics of the church leader, that which enables the church leader and the church itself to grow in godliness to live rightly, to flourish and to become a healthy church comes down to the message we believe. It comes down to what is preached and held as truth amongst the church. And what is this message? Paul spells it out for Titus in the next chapter. He says this, For the grace of God, in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness, and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the message that was appointed to the church leader to teach, to preach, and to uphold as the truth. He must not stray from it, add to it, change it in any kind of way. It is the message of grace that offers salvation and that message must reign over his or her life as well as the life of the congregation he or she leads as well. It's the message of grace, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection and forgiveness and salvation that not only defines the boundaries of freedom so the church doesn't fall into sin, 
but also shows the way of true freedom. Indeed, the way of grace shows freedom properly ordered. How we should freely act and, and behave is kind of determined by this message of grace, that we are forgiven, we are saved, and we can say no to ungodliness and wicked ways. In other words, Paul wants Titus to order the church, appoint leaders who are godly, so that the church might be formed and encouraged by the message of grace. Our job here as a staff team here at All Saints is to let the grace of God revealed in the word of God come alive in the people of God. That everything you do might be grace-filled. So you may live a good life. A good life in this world is a life lived knowing the grace of God in Jesus Christ. A life of worship and devotion in this age until Jesus returns again and we see the glory of God revealed in him. I hope that is true for your experience here at All Saints. That as you come here each week, you experience the wonderful message of grace week in, week out. As we sing together, as we confess our sins together, as we read God's word together, as we pray together, as, as the, the word is preached as well. I hope you experience the message of grace that it comes into your mind and, and is rooted in your heart so you can go out from here into a, a dark and graceless world with that message that inspires you and keeps you firm firmly holding on to Jesus. I hope that is what your experience is at this church because that's the goal. That's why I'm here. That's why I do this. That's why we do this. We want the message of grace to be so rooted in your hearts that, that it, it is established there forever. This task is super important and requires the leadership of this church to be bold and sometimes confrontational. So to hold firmly to the truth is not simply to encourage them in that walk, in that grace, but also to refute those who oppose it. Verses 10 to 14 talk about a group of people who were infiltrating the various house churches and causing strife, saying things that weren't true. Some of them were part of this group called the circumcision group. Now, I don't know if you had like a, <clears throat> you know, an agenda uh, a political party, if you want to call yourself the circumcision group, I think it's a very smart way to go about trying to get your agenda across to people. But these people were called the circumcision group, which I think is a bit strange. Anyway, they were all for combining the law with Christian faith, saying you had to be things like you had to be circumcised if you were also going to call yourself a Christian. You had to keep the commandments if also you wanted to be a Christian. Now, to be saved, Jesus was like the entry point, and then you had to do all these things as well. But we know. What, what they're trying to do is smuggle in to the message of grace, the goodness of Jesus, is a kind of salvation by works. That to be saved, we need to do this, 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 and this, plus Jesus, to get into heaven, to be saved, to enjoy uh, hope for eternity. But we know that salvation is not by works. 
There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. We are sinful people in need of his grace and mercy. And as we just saw in chapter 2, the grace that's been revealed is that salvation comes from God and is offered to all people. So salvation is definitely a work of grace. It's, it's grace to us. It's not something that we can do ourselves. And we know that because, you see, we are fortunate enough to grow up in the church. I hope most of you have. Grow up in a church that preaches the gospel faithfully. Week in, week out, we hear the message of grace because we have the structures in place, the qualifications in leadership in place that ensure that they, the ministers, will preach this message truthfully and faithfully. But back then, they didn't have that. They had no order, no structure. Anyone could come into this meeting gathering and say whatever they want. And the problem is some people were believing this, believing that they needed Jesus plus something else. And the thing is, some others were thinking, no, that isn't right. Now, I'm pretty sure it is grace and grace alone. But the problem was they didn't have the authority to refute them. So that's why Paul is saying to Titus, you've got to appoint elders. You've got to appoint people who have authority to say, that is wrong. Silence. Be silent. You've got to appoint these people so that the grace of God, the message of grace, will be protected from those who seek to destroy it or distort it with a works salvation view. We may not appreciate just how problematic this is in Sydney because, as I said before, we have grown up in a, in a diocese. We're in a, we're in a kind of evangelical culture where the message of the gospel is so grace-filled and clear about grace that we kind of take it for granted. But go outside of Sydney and that quickly evaporates particularly among Anglicans, actually, as well. And so <clears throat> we don't realize just how problematic this is, and particularly the internet as well. We now have access to preachers from all over the world, thousands and thousands and thousands of sermons, probably more than thousands. We have this ability to listen to so many different people at any given time and not necessarily know what beliefs they have, where they kind of come from, what kind of tradition they've been brought up in, in terms of Christianity. And we don't, might not even realize that perhaps they are smuggling in a work salvation message into the message of grace itself. There are preachers online who you can listen to who are famous, who, where millions and millions of people tune in every single week to hear their message, and they don't even realize they're listening to a distorted version or the message of grace, where they are told they need to have Jesus plus something else as well. And because Cliff and myself and others, we can't filter through every single sermon that's online, all I can say is that any sermon or message you hear that makes you feel a little off because the preacher is saying that you need to have this to be saved, you need to do this or have this experience to be a truly a Christian, to have more and more faith to see this, this happen, you ought not to listen to that kind of message. Listen to someone else because they're not preaching the gospel of grace. Even phrases such as have more faith sounds good but it's also very dangerous because it begins to turn that word faith 
from a gift of God that's given to us in Jesus into a work that we somehow perform ourselves. It's the church's lead, church leader's responsibility to refute error and to silence those who wish to say things that distort the message of grace. And it's so important to know that as I'm saying this, the goal isn't to make people feel guilty or upset, to make myself feel good about how much I know and how right I am. As Paul says, the goal is actually to bring them to sound faith. He says here in verse 13, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. There are so many churches in the world around us that seek to just rebuke and refute people for the joy, for the joy of it, for the sake of it. Rebuking sharply but without grace and mercy. But we ought to rebuke and refute people as a desire to, to bring them into the knowledge of sound faith and therefore understanding of the message of grace. So just as a parent knows that a diet consisting of chocolate, cake and Tim Tams is not good for their kid, those whom God appoints to church leadership tested and trained and gifted for it are given the authority to refute error and rebuke those within the church who have a distorted view of the message of grace. They are called to be sharp, perhaps painful at times as well. But here's the thing, just as a parent doesn't restrict their kids from those things because they hate their children, they do it because they love them and know what's good for them. In the same way, church leaders ought to refute error, not because they want to be right and, and, and self-righteous, and make them feel bad, rather because they love them, Christ loves them, and they care deeply for their spiritual health as well. I began <coughs> this evening talking about freedom and the idea of how that is the, our culture's highest value, how we want to plot our own futures, plot our own course, have the ability to do whatever we want to do. But we also recognise on the other flip side of it that freedom left unchecked can have disastrous consequences as it could lead to a kind of chaos. But the question is, uh, what system of governance or order is truly ordered towards our good? Because that's what we're suspected of. We, we suspect that these controlling societies aren't actually ordered towards our good. So what system is ordered towards our good that helps us to have a healthy and good expression of freedom. And the reality is, it can only be seen or tasted to begin with in the church of God, in Jesus Christ. In Him who has saved us from our sin and empowers us by His grace to say no to ungodliness and sin so that we can live an upright and holy life. In Jesus there is true freedom. Or better yet, there is a freedom that is properly ordered to what is good so we can do good and live good in this life. And to help us walk in this way, Jesus appoints church leaders, people in authority to guide you along the way so that the message of grace continues to ring in your heart and you can continue to choose to do and to live in a good and healthy and godly way until Christ returns again. That is the goal week in, week out. That we would walk, all of us, walk in freedom 
properly ordered to what is good under the authority of Jesus. I just want to say, if you feel like giving up on the church and church leadership and church authority structures, I beg you don't. I can't speak for all churches in our world and in our area, but I can say for ours, we exist to make the message of grace known and to see it rooted in your heart so you can live good lives for the glory of God. And that you can be confident when you see him again, when he returns, and you'll have joy when he does. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love and for your grace towards us. We thank you, Lord, we can gather here this evening to hear your word. We pray, Lord, for our church. Help us, Lord, to see the goodness of authority as authority is ordered and directed towards what is good in your Son. We pray, Lord, that we would seek to live lives with the message of grace ringing in our hearts all the time, rooted and established so we know how we ought to live in this world. We pray, Lord, that every single Sunday, that would be the focus of what we're trying to do. And we pray for our leadership here, that you would use us as leaders to facilitate and to enable the grace, this message of grace to be so clear and to be so obvious in all that we do for the sake that it might build us up and keep us going in your son. We pray these things in his name. Amen.